welcome to the LBYR SNL podcast. I'm Christy Michelle, the School and Library Coordinator, and today I'm here with Mark Favreau, author of the upcoming book, Spies, The Secret Showdown Between America and Russia. You may know Mark from the previous podcast he did with Victoria Stapleton, which you can find by scrolling down below, or from his book, Crash, The Great Depression and the Fall and Rise of America, which received three-starred reviews from Voya, Kirkus, and Booklist. It was also on a slew of best-of lists at the end of the year, including ALA's Notable Children's Books list and Bank Street College's Best Children's Books list. We're all super excited to share spies with you. The former acting director and deputy director of the CIA, John McLaughlin, has called it endlessly engaging, and he would know. Hi, Mark. Hey, Christy. All right, so let's jump right into the questions. When did you start writing nonfiction? What about nonfiction attracts you, both as a writer and as a reader? Well, I started tinkering with this kind of writing when I was in graduate school, and I was studying American history. I guess I just liked the idea that you could potentially reach a lot of people. I mean, not only with arguments of your own, but with real stories from the past, um, the kind of stories that I loved and also the kind of stories that you can learn from, and that might change your life even if you pay close enough attention. I'm attracted to nonfiction as a writer uh, and a reader because it's a way of learning about our world, of widening the circles of understanding, I guess, that, that we have as individuals and also as American citizens, understanding why the things are the way they are and, and also how they might be different. I, as a writer, just really enjoy the challenge of nonfiction, even if it can be completely frustrating. The fact is, like, with nonfiction writing, you first have to go and find your story in libraries or archives um, or elsewhere, um, online especially, and then you have to figure out a way to tell that story to readers. So there's just a ton of looking and searching and excavating of trying things out and false starts. Um, but along the way, I get to read and explore new paths and new parts of history I never knew anything about before. And honestly, I rarely end up where I thought I was going to. I've always wanted to ask a nonfiction writer why they write nonfiction, because I know there are a lot of fiction writers, like people who write historical fiction. They do a lot of research. So I've always been interested in why one person would do a lot of research and end up writing fiction, and another person would do a lot of research and end up writing nonfiction, just like what paths they take in their minds to end up telling a story but in a different way. Well, I think, I imagine that both types of writers just love the research and love the kind of rootedness in, in the real past, which is what I do. I mean, if, if I thought I had the talent as a writer to write fiction, and maybe I'll try it someday, I, I definitely see the appeal of fiction. Because I think as a nonfiction writer who values storytelling and who values kind of engaging an audience, it can be really limiting sometimes because, you know, Sometimes the outcomes just aren't the way you thought they should be, <laughs> or, or the characters didn't do what you would like them to, and there's just no, there's no room for changing or padding. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. um, so I I definitely get it, but there's nothing more interesting to me actually than to 
you know, for example, read an interview with a fiction writer and see just how much research they did. Because, you know, writing just doesn't come off the top of your head, no matter if you're, you're writing fiction or nonfiction. And, and there's so much, so much of the iceberg below the surface. Yeah. I remember after college, I basically stopped reading nonfiction because I didn't have a teacher telling me to. <laughs> so I just read a lot of fiction. But then a few years after I graduated, I started reading this history book. I forget the title, but it was about the war in the in the Balkans and about the, mm-hmm. the breakup of Yugoslavia. And what I remember reading that is how it rooted me in the world so specifically. And I learned about something I had no idea about. I mean, I grew up in the 90s. I was alive in the 90s, but I didn't know anything about that war. So I like the way nonfiction is able to open up a world for you and let you know about the world in a way fiction doesn't. Yeah, I feel exactly. And I feel the same way about about history writing in particular, even just U.S. history, mm-hmm. because, you know, it's almost like, it, I don't know if this is the right metaphor, it doesn't open up the world horizontally. It doesn't expand your sense of what the broader world is like, but it might actually change your sense of what your own small world is. I mean, it, it allows me to think more deeply about why people relate in the way they do or why things the way they are the way they are. But honestly, it can be challenging to read nonfiction for a lot of people because a lot of it isn't written mm-hmm. for non-experts. So I think that's you know, I think that's part of the challenge. That's also one of the reasons why I like nonfiction written for YA, because mm-hmm. it has a different audience in mind. It's speci- it's specifically talking to young readers, and so it's a little bit more approachable. It doesn't have as much jargon. It's not just one history buff talking to another history buff. Right. You've worked on adult nonfiction books, like A People's History of World War II, and remembering slavery. What do you think are the main differences in approach between nonfiction for adults and nonfiction for young readers? Well, as we're saying, you know, on some level, they're completely the same. And, you know, a good YA book ought to be accessible and meaningful for an adult reader. But um, if I'm being honest with myself, I would say that you can get away with more with books for adults. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, One thing I've been really conscious of when I write for young readers is that I watch every word, every assertion, and especially every claim of fact. You know, I I have this feeling of responsibility that this may be the first time a reader is encountering, whether it be the Great Depression or the Cold War or the story of espionage or other subjects. And those impressions can last and can shape how someone thinks about America and its history. So, well, I want to tell a good story and to keep my readers turning pages, absolutely. Um, that is always balanced with a concern for accuracy and for the truth. And I think there's, I just have a heightened consciousness of that, of writing for young readers. That focus on the truth is especially important right now, I think. But it always surprises me and makes me really happy whenever I speak to a children's author or a young adult author, how serious they are about the impact their books can have on readers because they know that their books can be formative. I used to work with authors for adult books, and they never had that kind of approach to to their writing. So I really like that with 
with authors who write for And kids. as you say, like, many people go on and never read nonfiction again, particularly if they spent their high school years with textbooks, you know, which are just sort of deathly boring. Mm-hmm. Um, so it may be that, I mean, I hope it's not the case, but that if someone were to have read my first book, Crash, that that is what they understand about the Great Depression, period. You know, and then and then something happens in the news, and that's their reference point for for the their understanding of the world. So it is, it is different. I, you know, every author has an opinion and a point of view, but I think authors of adult books are much more interested in engaging the debate, right, mm-hmm. and in and in shaping people's opinion. I think that's a, a very different thing than the type of objectives we're talking about for for young adult readers. Imagine a bookshelf. On this bookshelf are two books, Crash and Spies. What are three books you would place next to them? So I'm going to answer this kind of aspirationally. This is sort of what what books I would I would hope to imagine next to them. And you know, I'm not I'm modest by nature, so I'm going to force myself out of my shell here. And and I say that partly because what got me into writing for young readers was just the sheer admiration of other people doing it. And I will, I'm going to include some of those people on this shelf, again, as a kind of aspirational bookshelf. First and foremost, for me, the book Bomb by Steve Scheinkin kind of modeled everything that I wanted to be as a young adult author, you know, from the relevance of the history to the accuracy to just the sheer kind of storytelling prowess. I read that book as an adult and I, and I, and I experienced, I enjoyed it as an adult. That would be followed closely by the book Claudette Colvin, Twice Towards Justice by Philip Hoose. Again, a story about an aspect of American history I knew a lot about, but I didn't know this story. And I think I particularly respected his original like work in, in tracking down this person and then bringing her back into the kind of people's historical awareness. And again, you know, just a beautifully rendered book too. Uh, and lastly, I'm just going to go off the charts and veer into fiction with uh, the book Ghost Boys by Jewel Parker Rhodes. It's a book my kids loved. It's a book I love. It's an, an incredible act of imagination and storytelling. But for me, it blends fiction and real history, and it's like a history lesson in itself, even though it's a word of fiction, and it is true to the history, and I actually think it expands our appreciation for, for why that history mattered. I love that book. It's so, it's just so moving and so good. And just the idea behind it and how she executes it is so, so good. Right. It's a ghost story. I mean, what, you know, what could be better? And then it it just sort of veers into this, this really uh, important part of our, of our history. Your previous books, Crash, which is an ALA notable children's book of 2019, is a history of the Great Depression. Spies is a history of the Cold War, with a particular focus on the spies who worked during that era. How do you choose your subjects? I think it's kind of hard to say in retrospect, because the topics just kind of spoke to me, um, and they, you know, they wouldn't shut up on one level. Um, I'm sure it had something to do with the present moment I was living in, and the questions I had about it. So for Crash, I had absolutely been thinking about and living through the crash of 2008, which affected so many people, so many people I knew. And already at the time I had initiated this project, people weren't talking about it anymore, you know, this kind of world-changing event. But I wanted to know about how Americans survive this kind of catastrophe and what we can learn from that and how history speaks to that. For spies, 
there's no question that I was inspired by the issue of Russia and the U.S. elections, interference, all the new espionage cases breaking. All of that made me think about the long and very dangerous history between the two superpowers and that what's going on today between America and Russia really it didn't begin with Trump. It goes back to the end of World War II, and I think it's important for people to see the longer history. In general, I mean, my approach is that I want to understand and I want my readers to understand that there is always a much deeper history beneath the present and that it can help us interpret what's going on around us today. What kind of research did you do for each book and did your approach to each differ? How did your approach differ if it did? Well, sure. Um, for Spies, my most recent book, um, I was really committed to telling the history through the lives and words of real spies, the, the actual men and women who fought in the shadows of the Cold War. So much of my initial research focused on finding memoir, interviews, oral history, you know, the kind of sources that bring history to life. I wanted the narrative thread of each chapter and of the book as a whole to follow the life stories of individual spies that were not two-dimensional, that were fully developed characters with these really fascinating life stories. And, and I think I was able to do that. I think, it, I, think um, I'm, I was very, very happy with the material that I found. And I really, you know, I disappeared into it for a couple of years and was really convinced that there was a big story here. Um, for Crash, to be honest, I started with photographs from the Library of Congress. There was this really amazing collection from the WPA that documented everyday life in the 1930s, and I'd long been fascinated with that collection. So I sort of backed into my larger narrative from this visual history because I wanted more than anything for readers to feel what it was like for the Americans who lived through this intense period of poverty and deprivation and yet who managed to pull through. I mean, of course, I ended up writing a full history, but in Crash, the photographs are not simply illustrations. They tell a complicated human story of their own. So you obviously love history. Do you ever get lost in your research and have to remind yourself that you're not there just for the research, you're there to actually craft a story that people are going to read? Absolutely. And I, you know, I would describe it as lost, but like, it's almost like the really rough first draft, you know, of any piece of writing. And in my case, like it's always much longer and has way more in it than needs to be there at the end, you know, at the end of the sort of editing process. And I think what's challenging as a writer of nonfiction or probably just a writer of anything is that you can't always see it from the outset. Like you feel this responsibility to put everything in. But on the other hand, storytelling is a process of selection, right, and, of, and of, of narrative. So, yeah, it's kind of like finding your way out of the wilderness to the, the story that you want to tell and that you find most important, that you think is the right kind of representation of, you know, probably a much thicker and more complicated history and that would only fit inside like a 2,000-page book. So, so yes. It's, it's getting lost, but it's finding yourself um, in the process. I love how you're talking about the focus that you have as a, a nonfiction writer. It's kind of like when people talk about documentaries and they say it's not just exactly what you see on the screen. Like there was editing involved. There's a story that the people behind the camera wanted to tell. 
Absolutely. And I think so in my in, a, you know, a parallel life, I work as a book editor for adult um, authors, mostly works of history. So I kind of know this uh, intuitively. and It's really influenced how I write. You know, I'll, I'll often get a manuscript from an, an adult, sorry, an author who's writing for adults on, say, the history of slavery or the history of the American foreign policy. And it it is you know, recklessly like twice as long as it should be. And so then I work with the author behind the scenes to bring it down to size and to be the best story it can be. And I'm often in my head analogize, analogize over to film editing because you don't see it right as a reader, mm-hmm. but the, the hand is still there. Yes. Who were your favorite figures from the book to write about? Were there any spies you researched but left out of the book? Well, first of all, there are many, many more spies that fought the Cold War and who couldn't make it into my narrative for reasons we've discussed. I, I, I hope I didn't do them a disservice, and I spent a lot of time and energy on the bibliography and the suggestions for future reading so that readers could investigate the wider history on their own and make their own decisions about what was important and what interested them. That said, two characters have really stayed with me um, since I finished the book. Uh, first and foremost, Marty Peterson, um, who was the first woman, a CIA operative, to be sent as a spy against the Soviet Union. And this was in the early 1970s. And she did so right in the belly of the beast in Moscow itself. She went there alone in her 20s after her husband had died following the Vietnam War and she signed up with the CIA clandestine service but she was this incredibly smart, savvy, brave woman at a time when no one on the American side, which is to say the CIA colleagues who had sent her there in the first place, believed that she could do the work of the spy as a woman. And she proved them all wrong. She was one of the first covert operatives um, in those years to get past the KGB and to meet regularly with the high-level Soviet agent who was willing to provide the U.S. with secrets. And the interesting thing is when the KGB finally caught up with her and arrested her, they were completely surprised because they had no idea this young woman was a spy. And I got to know her a little bit because she was able to look at the manuscript and talk to me about it. And she just has this incredibly uh, compelling personal story. And that's so for me, that's, you know, that's, there's the story of the espionage, which is really interesting, but then her, there's her personal story of, of achievement and overcoming these, these hurdles. That's really inspiring. The second character is a man that some people might know. His, his name is Francie, Francis Gary Powers. Um, there was a, a film called Bridge of Spies a few years ago that featured his story. He's not what we would normally think of as a spy because he was a pilot. But he piloted a plane called the U-2, which was a specially outfitted aircraft that could could soar over targets and take these high-definition photographs. And the U-2 that he piloted gave America the first glimpses of life inside the Soviet Union in the 1950s and 60s and allowed America's leaders to understand the Soviets' military capabilities. Powers was this really funny, down-to-earth guy who just wanted to fly planes and to serve his country. And then the unimaginable happened. His plane was shot down over Russia, and he was arrested and put on trial. And the, you know, the, the, the sad and ironic thing about his story is that he never gave up America's secrets. He, he, he stayed true to his country, but in the hysteria of the Cold War, many Americans viewed him as a traitor. 
and his name was never truly cleared of that suspicion. But honestly, as my book shows, he was the real thing, and he was a genuine hero of the Cold War. And I just I think about him all the time, and he's just a really interesting, complicated guy and, and an example of what what these spies were up against. Just what you mentioned there, the the hysteria during the Cold War, and also kind of what we've been talking about, about how nonfiction kind of centers you in your world and makes you understand your world better, is making me think about how... This is this is a really weird tangent, and I'm sorry. It's okay. But it's making me think about the X-Files and about uh-huh. how in the 90s, like, there was this pervasive sense of like not trusting your government right like that's just how people felt yeah and it came out in popular culture but I feel like that's not right now that's not how people feel I feel like people just kind of like they're just like oh whatever the government even if they they disagree with the current administration or if they agree with the current administration like there isn't this distress like they feel like they know what's going on whether they feel like it's bad or not you know I don't know that just made me that's think a, of that. No, that's a really good point. I I, I was thinking about that because I listened. There's an excellent podcast called Slow Burn, which covers different moments in American political history. But the first one was about Watergate, and there's an episode where the podcast describes how after Watergate had already played itself out in the late 1970s was this time of like unbelievable conspiracy theory in the United States, like even people who you might respect were not friend characters, like completely embraced the idea that the government was up to something, was experimenting on humans or spying on you. And that's because that Watergate was true. Like the worst case scenario turned out to be true. And it just set Americans off on edge. Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting that you say that because given all we know now that's gone on, that kind of mentality just isn't out there. Yeah. But of course, during the Cold War, we had, you know, legions of spies out there in the world. We had all kinds of things going on in the United States, and it was all under the umbrella of this Cold War and national security, so it could happen, and it could happen legally, or it happened one way or the other. And I think I think you're right. Like, an everyday average person might suspect that the, what they're seeing is not what was real <laughs> because there was so much what they called the clandestine activity going on. There was so much going on behind the scenes that we didn't know about. Mm-hmm. I've always thought Americans have a really like interesting psychological relationship to their government. But that's a conversation for another time. Different book. Right? Yes. Good book, though. Yeah. How can reading and learning about the Cold War help young readers navigate their world today? Well, you know, as I said earlier, when I set out, to do this, what what was on my mind was Russia and Putin and Trump and all the things that are just completely obsessing the United States today. But I think as I worked through it and, and I went back in, in into the past and put myself in the center of the Cold War, I had a really different thought about why this might be relevant. I mean, we are facing so many world-threatening crises today, from climate change to terrorism to the political meltdown in our own country. And it can seem like there will be no ending, no happy ending or no resolution. But here's the thing, when you go back into time and think about the Cold War, I'm 50. And when I was in the sixth grade, 
we all sat at home one night and watched a made-for-TV movie back when there was actual television called The Day After, which was an incredibly realistic look at life in America after a nuclear war. And it was very real to us. I mean, there was no question. My parents knew the predetermined route from our home in the suburbs of Boston to this small town in Western Mass where we were supposed to evacuate when the bombs started falling. It was just a given. And for almost 50 years, people took it for granted that the world could end at any moment. And it was genuine. In fact, we know now, looking back at events like the Cuban Missile Crisis, that America and Russia came so close to launching nuclear missiles at one another that they almost couldn't admit it publicly, and it only came out many, many decades later. This was just the way life was. We didn't know anything else. But the thing was, nuclear war never happened. The Cold War ended. And there are so many reasons for that, but it had a lot to do with the wisdom of leaders, the wisdom of diplomats, and this incredible bravery of these secret warriors, the spies that I write about. And you know, the message isn't necessarily a happy one, but it's that there is reason to hope, but only if you know we are brave, we're committed to our world, and if we demand that our leaders work together to get out of the mess that we're in. So there's, I think there's a story there that is worth thinking about and is relevant, and it puts our own kind of sometimes scary present into a different context. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Christy. It was totally fun. I really appreciate it. Listeners, Spies Hit Shells, October 1st, so make sure to get a copy. For more nonfiction goodness, you can follow Mark on Twitter at at the Mark Favreau, And as always, you can find us on Twitter at at LB School. And until next time, happy listening and happy reading.